0: Personnel is policy. The people who are sitting in these positions at agencies or who are heading up committees in Congress, it's sort of their personal preferences and personalities that are driving the policies that we're seeing coming out of this.
1: What role Secretary Yellen will play in that will be interesting.
2: Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, Join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey.
3: Hi, everyone. I'm Michael Casey. Welcome to Money Reimagined. Well, it's over. The Trump presidency, gone. It was, let's say, a noteworthy four years, filled with unprecedented developments. Look, you know, we try to keep this show apolitical, so I'm just going to leave it at that. What I do want to say is that uh, for the emerging industry of cryptocurrencies and blockchain, the Trump presidency was also quite literally a period of important precedence. It was the era in which these ideas caught mainstream and by extension forced regulators to address them. In the middle of Trump's first year, the crypto ICO boom took off. And as a result, the Securities and Exchange Commission, chaired by Trump appointee Jay Clayton, woke up to this industry. The SEC got steadily stricter with token issuers, in a string of actions against ERC-20 token sales, it muddled its way to a general but still not entirely well-articulated view that many of those token sales were in breach of securities laws. The Financial Crimes Enforcement Network also tightened its grip on the industry with tougher KYC and AML reporting requirements for exchanges, which has been seen as a blow to crypto privacy. The most extreme signal came a month ago when Trump's Treasury Secretary, Steven Mnuchin, released a dramatic proposal for FinCEN to require crypto exchanges to track the identities of non-custodial wallet holders. By contrast, moves by the federal banking regulator, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, as well as by the Commodities Futures Tradings Commission, have mostly been welcomed by the industry. Under former Coinbase counsel Brian Brooks, the OCC opened the door for more smooth integration between banking and crypto, including the recent move to allow banks to use stablecoins. And under Chairman Christopher Giancarlo, whom we had on the show last week, the CFTC gave a green light to Bitcoin futures. After that, Giancarlo's successor, Heath Tarbot, offered strong hints that Ether futures would also be allowed. So the Trump era was, let's say, a bit of a mixed bag. The question now is what to expect from the Biden administration. One day into the new president's tenure, we've brought in Kristen Smith, Executive Director of the Blockchain Association, and Amy Kim, Chief Policy Officer at the Digital Chamber of Commerce to look into the future. We'll also have them talk about the relationship that the industry has in the lobbying and policy-making effort within Washington. But first, let's say hello to co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So yeah, the end of an era.
4: <laughs> Here we are.
3: <laughs> the end of an era. Indeed. What a bizarre ending.
4: No kidding. I mean, we're hours into this administration today. We're actually recording on inauguration day. I, I have to say, I, certainly, many things without precedent. I was surprised, I think, a bit by just the physical release of tension <laughs> that I, you know, as a woman of color, as the wife and daughter of immigrants, as a mom of very young children, you know, had been holding over this entire past administration for a variety of reasons, really not many of which are related to the crypto industry, but just as a general matter. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in this first 100 days, but also what happens over the course of this administration, not the least of which is the proposed appointments do wind up going through.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, an outgoing like none other, a list of incredible pardons. I was wondering, you know, how are we going to interpret <laughs> it if he did something like Snowden or uh, Russell, Brook we were interested in that. Yeah. But no, we got- uh, We got Lil Wayne. <laughs> we got Lil Wayne and we got the guy with the, the snakes in Florida. Glad he got it, pardon.
4: Yes, that's right. <laughs> certainly uh, a couple of weeks we're coming off of without precedent, I think really that's, is just the way the to point. sum it up.
3: Yeah, it is. So anyway, look, it's certainly an interesting time. But before I introduce the guests, probably worth just flagging a little bit, you are going to be very busy next week because the World Economic Forum, which would normally be- Crowded into the ridiculous location <laughs> of Davos that yes. crams the entire world into this little town with way too much snow and too difficult to get around. Is now actually going to do it all virtually, obviously.
4: And no de-icing protocol. Don't forget that. Icy, slippery roads, mountainous roads. Right. This <laughs> yes. is much
3: safer. This is a much safer place. There will be far less broken ankles during the yes. virtual Darbos One season.
4: hopes. <laughs> One hopes tripping over laptop cords will not lead to the same level of danger. <laughs>
3: So what's on tap? What can we expect for it?
4: Yeah, well, it's certainly, again, you know, without precedent. So the entire event has moved virtual. We will be hosting, as usual, leaders uh, from around the world, many heads of state who will be delivering really what have come to become their almost state of the country addressing this pandemic. One imagines a lot of the financial ramifications as we sort of begin to enter a vaccination period, speaking about vaccination rollout, things like this. We're also, we have two sessions that we're running on digital currencies, one of which, Michael, I'm so pleased that you'll be moderating for us. We'll be speaking about digital currencies and kind of what the future may hold, what's happened and what's coming. So excited about that. It'll be interesting to see the different perspectives that come together in that agenda. And certainly Davos has, again, it's become this time when a lot of world leaders do lay out their intentions for the coming year. And we'll be curious to see if, if the change in administration here in the United States, is, you know, modifies what we've heard over the last couple of years during this time.
3: All righty. So like, why don't we move on and get our guests in here? Cause I think they've got sort of more greater insights than I can bring to this at the moment. So Kristen and Amy, thank you very much for being here. The way I would like to start this up is, you know you heard my take on what the last four years were. Just rather quickly, do you have a way to characterize from the perspective of the crypto community and blockchain community, what we've experienced this past four years? In a few words, would be your sum up of it is. So, Amy, why don't you uh, take a plunge first?
1: It, It is hard to say because, as you pointed out, there were so many different takes and perspectives to this. But I would say it was bumpy, partly because of what happened with the industry, you know, taking off in ICOs and and then amazing projects. You know, we had a lot of uneven aspects of the industry. A lot of great projects taking off, maybe some not so great that were needed to be addressed. And then, as you said, you know, the agencies themselves and, and the leaders of those agencies had very specific perspectives on how they wanted to affect change. Um, you know, Acting Comptroller Brooks certainly taking a, quite a progressive, pro, pro-technology pro uh, Chair Clayton, much more reserved, much more cautious, and much more of an enforcement angle.
3: Yeah, I'm looking forward to taking a bit more into the whole Jay Clayton versus now we've got Gary Gensler coming in, obviously question and the difference in style and approach to laying down the guidelines. But Kristen, how about you? What do you think is your big takeaway from, from this experience?
0: Well, my big takeaway is with crypto policy issues in government, personnel is policy. The people who are sitting in these positions at agencies or who are heading up committees in Congress. It's sort of their personal preferences and personalities that are driving the policies that we're seeing coming out of this. I don't think crypto policy is inherently a partisan issue, but it really comes down to how much do people know about it? Are they convinced that crypto is going to be the foundation of our next financial services system and our next Web 3.0 or not? And depending on that point of view, that is going to dictate what policies we see come forward.
4: That's a really interesting point, Kristen. I I do think that more than many other spaces, uh, crypto policies have been driven by either almost a, a personal animus, you know, towards crypto or a strong belief that it is actually something that should be embraced. And I do think that under this administration, we saw a little bit more permission to reflect personal biases in policymaking do that more overtly than I think we've seen in previous administrations. And so now that I think we're going back a little more to policymaking as usual, where there's at least a specter or a facade of objectivity that will probably come back into some of this, it'll be interesting to see how that's reflected in the policymaking. I also think we have to consider the broader context in which Biden is taking over. You know, certainly COVID is intended and should be the focus of the first hundred days. He's also pledged to create a lot of uh, movement around immigration and make that a cornerstone of his administration. We have an economic crisis, really unprecedented in our country. And of course, we're seeing a lot of activity on things like central bank digital currencies and crypto technology from other parts of the world, including players like China and in Singapore and others and and even the European Union that have been historically, that have been significant factors in American policy. So it will be curious to see how the new perspectives that this administration brings in will affect that. But I'm curious about a couple other things maybe you can help us get educated about here, which are three of us are lawyers. And so we do have a a good sense on, uh, or we work a lot with lawyers and we have a good sense about how the sausage really is made, but perhaps some insight into what things really do change with an incoming administration and what things stay the same. So certainly we have significant careers versus political appointees. How does the agenda of the appointee really change the rank and file and, and, and what they do? And how quickly does that kind of change really trickle down or permeate the agencies here?
0: You know, I think the key distinction you made when you're looking at executive branch agencies is political versus career appointees. There are a lot of career staff and career positions where those people stay from administration to administration, but there is a list. Obviously, the Treasury Secretary and all the undersecretaries, those are all political appointees. The OCC is a political appointee. The agencies, the CFTC and the SEC, you know, those are five person commissions. And the The chair for each of those commissions comes from the party of the president. And so you do get a mixed vibe between the two parties. So, yeah, we're going to see, you know, changes across all of these. Now, you know, when you're looking at commissions, you got to get votes to move things through at the commission level. The OCC, we found, is a much more sort of unilateral, whatever the OCC controller wants to do. There's a lot of variety. And, you know, Congress can play a role in this as well with the Democrat led Senate. I think we're much more likely to see, you know, nominees put forth by the administration that are a little bit more progressive than we would have seen if the outcome in Georgia had been different.
1: Sheila, I would add too, when a new administration is coming in, you have to look at the whole transition process as well. So in addition to you have the career staff and you have political appointees, there's a transition team that is meeting even before the inauguration with the staff on the ground in each of the agencies, getting up to speed on what are the issues that they're going to be uh, tackling when they come in? You know, what are the hair on fire issues that, you know, in the first, the minute the the doors open, you've got to handle that. And what are the ones that are on a longer thread? And President Biden hasn't done this already. He's expected to issue a memorandum today that would stop additional final rulemakings, you know, while they assess if those fit within their spectrum. And And I agree with you, blockchain wasn't really a a presidential platform item that they were tackling for votes. So I, I think I agree with you when you say, you know, they're going to be looking at the crisis that we're in, obviously the pandemic and vaccines and relief packages, climate change, immigration, all these things that were huge drivers of really the election over the last few months. And, you know, he's going to have a, we're anticipating an aggressive plan there. Which I think would be a good thing because so much has been happening in the last six weeks, I think, even in crypto policy making. It would be nice to have a chance to collect our bearings and um, <laughs> take a
4: breather out. for a bit.
1: <laughs> yeah. And and you know, and I think something that the industry should be looking at, and I'm sure Kristen is as well, is getting to know the new people coming in. And as she said, you know, a lot of it is people driven and relationship driven and I think those are important relationships to have, you know, government and policymakers learn from industry. And I think industry can learn from regulators in some respects. So that, that's going to be, I think, a challenge as we have this transition coming in and, and setting out what the next hard work will come in.
4: Mm-hmm. So tell us more about that, about the role really of well, the chamber. And then we can go back to you, Kristen, with the association. And, and of course, there are other industry bodies in Washington as well that have become very prominent and, and very vocal on behalf of the industry. What is the general strategy there when it comes to engagement with regulators and legislators? And, and how will that shift you know, over this next 100 days as you do get to know the people who we see who's appointed and we do get to know what their agenda might be and, and how we might exert some influence as an industry?
1: It, you know, there's a lot of factors. I mean, one of them is where do we think industry is going and growing over the course of the next year? Because that will introduce opportunities and also potential pain points. And then we also look at the composition of the government as well. You have a Biden administration, it's democratic, a slim majority in the Senate, a majority but slimmer than it was in the House. And, you know, what does that mean? What are their priorities going to be? Obviously, I would imagine some consumer and investor protection will be a much more elevated, you know, issue that we'll have to deal with as an industry on the before. And then sort out, you know, where do we think some of those highlight issues are going to be stablecoins? Will definitely be there not only because of the U.S. but also multilateral organization drivers through the FATF and FSB and other players like that, and also self-managed or self-hosted and the decentralized finance. I think are also going to be some issues that we're going to have to address, as well as AML. We touched on what FinCEN did and the Treasury Department did at the end of 2020, and. Well, I think you know that will change. That trajectory will change in this new administration. I think those are issues that are still out there, and, and we'll have to deal with them with the career staff as well as the new political appointees.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with everything Amy has said. I mean, when we approach, how are we going to try to influence Washington? You know, there is the ideally how we would want to do it, and then there's like in reality how it ends up happening because things come up so fast, but. You know, ideally, you want to have set the foundation where you know the people in these positions and they know who you are and have a basic understanding of what the industry is and how it works. Unfortunately, we don't always have the time or the bandwidth, given that these organizations are so small, to actually go and do that work in advance. But ideally, we will have done that. When something comes up, we will already have a position as an industry. I mean, we spend a lot of time In the blockchain association working with our members to come up with a consensus as to what our policy position should be. And you know, that's not a given. It might be a given in other industry groups that have been around for a while and the issues haven't changed. But with this, this is also new that it takes a lot of work within the industry to really think through like, okay, how do we want to play this? Where do we want to position ourselves? And that takes a lot of time. But you know, if you have the relationship and you've done the education, that helps a lot. Unfortunately. What sometimes happens is these things pop up out of left field, and because the industry is so young and has only been engaging in Washington for a couple of years, we just don't have the luxury of being able to go deep into some of these places. That's starting to get better, I think, over time. I think we'll be set back a little bit with the new administration coming in because there's so much turnover, like Amy was saying, with so many new people that are coming into key positions their staffs are changing. There's so much shuffling. But at the same time, we often end up getting new people into the mix that actually have a tremendous amount of background. So I think there'll be some some pros and cons. But for us, the, the focus is once we sort of wrap up, hopefully, the issues with self-hosted wallets, really just focusing on education, education, education.
1: Couldn't agree more, Kristen. I mean, education, I think, is so key and especially... You know, as like new innovations in this industry, you know, kind of take hold and flourish, combined with the fact that, the, the, you know, there's a lot more happening in the industry, you get a lot more policymakers interested in this topic, and they have opinions and perspectives. And sometimes they're based on thorough analysis, and sometimes it's based on maybe they don't even realize an incomplete understanding. And that's, I think, education alone is a challenge because there are a lot of people out there that are taking an interest in this. And so I do see that as being a key component for both of us uh, over the year.
3: So Kristen, you know, you said earlier on that the personalities really matter, right? This is less (laughs) about ideology and politics and more about who you are, and what do you know, and whether you buy in or not, or, you know, the degree of knowledge. So let's look at some of the personalities if we can here. two names in particular are, are obviously very high profile at this moment. One is Gary Gensler, who was the former CFTC chair. He's done a lot of other things as well. He was a treasury. He was, I think, a assistant secretary under Lawrence some time ago. Lawrence Summers. He ran the finance campaign for Hillary Clinton. Very deeply steeped in Washington, but in the last few years, really dived deep into crypto and blockchain. And I happen to know this personally because I work with him at MIT for a couple of years. You know, co-wrote a paper with him. So full disclaimer there. Known Gary for a while, and and to be honest, I'm very very pleased that somebody who is so well informed in this space is now a part of this process. But, you know, he's got fairly strong formed views as well on a lot of stuff. Quite different, I think, perhaps than Jay Clayton. So, but you guys are probably closer to that than I am. Where do you see it going, Kristen? I mean, what does the Gary Gensler nomination signal to you? Been
0: doing a lot of thinking about that, Listen, I mean, I think, you know, with Jay Clayton, we had a chairman who didn't think highly of this space. I mean, I think that's safe to say, but also didn't really want to learn about what was happening. He, he didn't have a very particularly strong interest in it, um, really until a, a little bit later on, I think before he left, he did a couple of things that were positive for the industry, but also did a couple of things that were problematic. But we never got the sense from engaging with him that he was really interested in this stuff. Gary Gensler is obviously the opposite, and he knows a lot about this. I think the question is going to be, what does he do with that knowledge? You know, there's been some speculation around a Bitcoin ETF, and does this kind of clear the pathway for that? You know, I think he has pretty strong views on Bitcoin and that that could be a possibility. But, you know, in terms of sort of broader application of securities laws to the crypto ecosystem... You know, I think if he takes an action, it will be an incredibly informed action. I just haven't quite seen the signals or been able to read the tea leaves as to where he is going to go on that yet. And I think it's obviously hugely positive that he understands the space, but just because someone understands the space doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be like a free for all for the industry. So, you know, I think we're really looking forward to engaging with him, be interested to see who else he brings in to some of those key positions that are under his control. And I think that will sort of, you know, start to indicate where he might go. So, so we'll know more in the weeks ahead, but I don't know, Amy might have some additional insight.
3: Yeah. I suppose the way I'd frame it to you, Amy, is like, you know, how important is it? What's the preference? Is it somebody that knows a lot about it or somebody who's, you know, Rah, rah likely to be inclined to, to favor it? How do you work through those yeah. two scenarios?
1: Yeah, on the theme of the person makes the office, you know, in his case, you look at his history, you know, he came off the Enron scandal and with Sarbanes-Oxley, and then, you know, comes off the financial crisis and implementing at an extraordinary pace, Dodd Frank reform at the CFTC. So he brings those experiences with him. And, you know, if you think about Republicans, broadly speaking, tend to be a little less regulatory focused, a little more industry driven and Democrats tilt a little bit the other way, a little more regulation, especially, I think, just given those crises in financial services, you know, I would anticipate that he'll have an informed opinion for sure. Just given the experiences you've mentioned at MIT and elsewhere, I do think that we will see some more regulation. Now, is that a bad thing? you know, a lot of us have been asking for more clarity in the space. And I think we'll probably get that. The key is going to be making sure that it's as informed as possible amongst to-be Chair Gensler and his team. And we might have to live with some things we don't like, but if the majority of it is good and strong, maybe, you know, at least we'll have the regulatory clarity. And a lot of people come to the United States for that, you know, stricter rules, but it's a great market.
3: Let's drill down to that a little bit, because you know until this moment, I wasn't particularly well informed, not that I necessarily am much more now, but I was not fully aware of the way the SEC you know, rolled. And it, it was remarkable not to see pronouncements. There was the occasional speech and the occasional kind of guidance on certain select incidences. I remember the guidance on, for example, the Dow attack, which we then interpreted to mean something about you know, what their position on ICOs and decentralization were. And the Hinman address about Ethereum and these things, we would sort of piece it together. But it was really through the case law and the cases they would take that we would sort of bit by bit piece up some picture about what the SEC's position was, as well as I suppose there are no action letters and things like that. Can we now expect a scenario where there are actually more sort of formal statements about here is our position or does that undermine how the SEC goes about its particular enforcement approach?
1: What I'd really like to see is maybe an advance notice, you know, a consultation period where here's our perspectives, like you said, how we think we should tackle A, B, and C. And here are 60 days or 90 days in which to provide your comments. You know, they they did something like that recently. There's a a statement that was published around special purpose broker-dealers for digital asset securities uh, in December. And that's asking, requesting a consultation period. So that's the positive step, right? I mean, previously, we've really been reading the tea leaves a little bit through enforcement actions, through guidance documents that have been published. You know, so I would like a, to see a more formalized approach like that, that seeks input and, and takes some industry perspective there.
3: Yeah. So on that note, why don't we move to the next big appointment? Um, and that's Janet Yellen, high profile figure as well uh, in Washington, former chairperson of the Federal Reserve, and now the Treasury Secretary. The outgoing Steve Mnuchin, you know, he went out with this bang of releasing (laughs) these, uh, this proposal criticized heavily by the industry, not just by the fact that it seemed to be a very draconian move against, you know, self-hosted wallets, but also that the timing of it demanding, you know, comments in this right there in a short period of time, just before the administration was ending over the holiday period, little did they know they were going to get, you know, seven and a half thousand comments coming in (laughs) and then ultimately an extension on that. What do you think a Yellen treasury looks like with regard to FinCEN, but I suppose more broadly, the range of different uh, areas of impact the treasury secretary can have on the sector?
0: I mean, I think Yellen is going to be an improvement over Mnuchin only in that Mnuchin was really, really bad for crypto. He has a personal animus for Bitcoin in particular. He likens a self-hosted wallet to an unnumbered Swiss bank account. And he wanted to bring the whole thing down. And if he could have banned it outright, I think he would have. And the attack on self-hosted wallets was the strongest, closest thing that he could reasonably come up with. I think had the industry not shown up in force, we would be living with a final rule today. He really, really wanted to get that done. And it was only through threat of lawsuit and a massive reaction with comments and, You know, quite frankly, the incident that happened at the Capitol that slowed all of that down. So we have dodged a bullet this time. Obviously, Yellen's comments at the hearing yesterday were not encouraging at all. But that being said, I also don't think it's her number one priority. She essentially said that the cryptocurrency's only use is for illicit finance. That is obviously incredibly wrong. And we have a tremendous amount of work to do there. And I think we'll sort of see the rubber hit the road on this is, you know, who is in the mix? to be her undersecretary for these issues that handles the terrorism and finance issues. And so I think she's going to be better, but I'm not sure she's going to be better by much given uh, her testimony yesterday.
3: And Amy, what was your thoughts about that testimony?
1: Yeah, well, so with the testimony, I think it was tempered. You know, I think she answered the question she was asked. You know, I do think she still has some learning curve left. First of all, I think with respect to um, a Yellen Treasury Department, I'm, I'm thrilled that she's the first woman to hold the position. That's a sign of moving the right direction. You know, again, I think her experiences too will, will impact what she does here. And I think that kind of drives the, the statement she made. She's an expert at monetary policy, economic, and just that past experience with the Fed. She'll have some interesting inputs, I think, on CBDC, for example, even from the Treasury Department's perspective how deep that goes with respect to terrorist Finance or Bank Secrecy Act and anti-money laundering, she strikes me as the type that will rely on her advisors for some inputs there. And if that happens, I think that's a good thing. There's a lot of smart people um, in the Treasury Department and law enforcement and within terrorist Finance, some of the nominations or the appointments that they've talked about, the staff that will be coming in are steep in cryptocurrency. And then the, the people, the, the boots on the ground that have been there for some time. So she's surrounded by some smart people here that I'm confident will be able to give her great advice. And she strikes me as, you know, just given all of her experience throughout government, really, it's senior levels of government to be someone who can listen to that advice. And then she'll make her own judgment.
4: Yeah, I think what's really interesting there, too, is, as you noted, Amy, her experience with the Fed. And just as someone who did create monetary policy and think a lot about stimulus and other things that are going to be deeply relevant in the first 100 days and certainly beyond as we enter this period, hopefully, of economic recovery, what do we expect to happen with the Fed? Do we think that Biden will be naming governors? And maybe uh, we could just do a quick primer on, on the Fed and how it works and the fact that there are different branches of the Fed all over the country and how they coordinate. And what the relationship might look like with a Treasury secretary who deeply, deeply understands the Fed, who will be able to think about the intersection of fiscal policy and monetary policy and how that might work to actually be a driver within the crypto industry. That kind of intersectionality of those two different things might lead to a new opportunity potentially for the industry.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because when she was at the Fed, I think she made the statement that you know we don't oversee Bitcoin, so she didn't really have yeah. an opinion on it. Now she actually can oversee Bitcoin, and, and you know I think it's been an interesting dynamic at the Fed with the branches, and uh, up until maybe recently, maybe still, were more progressive on the issue. You saw a lot of reports and, and thinking mm-hmm. around CBDCs and other things, you know, coming out of San Francisco and, and St. Louis and others, and Boston, Boston. and then now you see- yeah. Yeah. And now you see Project Hamilton. It's a great step in the right direction, probably needs more. What role Secretary Yellen will play in that will be interesting. I mean, certainly as part of FSOC, she could have some inputs there.
3: FSOC, just for our viewers, what is FSOC exactly?
1: It's a group of the financial services regulators within the leads within the US government that was created after Dodd-Frank, really, to, you know, to create financial stability, Financial Stability Oversight Council. It would include Treasury, SEC, CFTC, the prudential regulators like um, the OCC
4: and the, the Fed and the FDIC. And I think it's going to be interesting to see. You know, there's certainly uh, administrations or agencies led by personalities that are more open to collaborative rulemaking. So the kind of advance notices and things like that was an opportunity for for collaboration or comment, not just comment, but actually consultation with the public, whether that's industry groups or others. Procedurally, what happens with that FinCEN? situation? You know, where where does that stand now?
0: So they have reopened the comment period, which I have told a couple people this now, but I had dinner that night with my best friend and I said, crypto saved. And she said, Oh, what happened? And I said, they reopened the comment period and they bifurcated the CTR from the counterparty information. And she looked at me like I was, you know, (laughs) insane. But yeah, I think your point, Sheila, process is so important. And anytime There are rules that are coming together that impact the crypto industry. It is such a fast growing, complicated space that if we don't have an open process where we can bring in different points of view, different aspects of the industry, then the policy is just not going to be good. And so... Where we're at right now is there's now two comment periods. Um, They've taken the rulemaking and divided it into two topics. The first is a 15-day comment period on the currency transaction reporting aspect. So just basically flagging an MSB's customers, uh, high volume transactions to FinCEN. And then there's this other issue with the counterparty information. And I, I think FinCEN's focus right now is really on that first issue. It wouldn't surprise me if we see an extension. Um, I think there's some, and Amy may know this, you know, there's this, as she mentioned before, there's this potential for like a 60-day freeze that, that Biden may have issued this afternoon, maybe even while we were recording this. And so I think the good news is we're gonna have a lot more time to work through this. Um, but I also think the good news is that FinCEN has heard the message on the counterparty information, which is basically identifying who owns the self hosted wallet. And so I'm hopeful that we'll be able to move forward with this rulemaking in a way that is much more in line um, and much more closer to how we treat cash than kind of doing some massive expansion into, into self-hosted wallets. So we're, we're really optimistic and we consider it a major victory that the comment period was reopened.
3: Yeah, it was. It was, it was a big one. Amy, like, so what about we move focus here to you know an agency that has been looked upon more favorably, uh, Christian Carlo, who's now sort of in his second life turned him into something of of a real sort of figure within the uh, digital currency, you know, crypto world. We had him on the show last week. CFTC, yeah, much more favorably viewed under their watch. We got Bitcoin futures and now, you know, talk under Heath Tarbot. I don't know who's coming in as a nominee there to replace him, but ETH futures being one on the table. Any thoughts on where things go with that agency?
1: it has been more pro-business and pro-growth in this space and, you know, are principles-based regulators so that that has served that well, um, both under Chair Giancarlo, who I thought he was fantastic on your podcast last week and happy that he serves on a board, and then with Chair Tarbert as well. You know, I think what we might end up seeing is, you know, potentially, again, I mean, this is age-old, it's gone on for decades, but what is, the, what is the appropriate jurisdiction between the two? Where is that, you know, that tension between securities and commodities, and, and I think that we're going to be pushing the envelope there. You know, if you prove a, an ETF, for example, does that give you authority to regulate the underlying spot markets? Um, or is that a CFTC role? Or is that anybody's role? I mean, we don't regulate spot markets for rice or beans or anything else. So what does that mean if we cross that threshold? Um, so that's where I think there, you know, we could continue to see. And this was an age old issue going way back, even when the, the agency or CFTC was created. So
3: as you say, an age old issue, and seems that what's quite interesting is the very nature of this new technology is it's raising questions about what they are, right? Are they securities? Are they assets? Are they commodities? And so forth. So the, the delineation that seemed clear in a traditional finance world is not necessarily the case uh, in this one. And I want to use that as a framework to ask you, Kristen, what do you think these regulators, be they CFTC, SEC, the Fed for that, or the OCC are going to be looking at the world of DeFi? I mean, is it on their radar? Is it going to be on their radar? Decentralized finance is is essentially creating a different framework for the same system. We've got lending and borrowing and insurance and even credit default swaps built on a decentralized architecture with nobody necessarily in charge and a governance model that is completely different. Where does jurisdiction lie there, and are they thinking about it? And, and can we expect to see anything come either this year or the next? And how they're going to be approaching it?
0: Yeah, no, I think they're starting to think about it, particularly at the FCC. You know, both uh, at the commissioner level, but also you know the staff within the divisions are starting to think about DeFi and what it means. I think we saw with Brian Brooks at the OCC, he did a fantastic op-ed in the Financial Times called "Self-Driving Banks," where he laid out uh, what I thought was a pretty innovative way to think about how to go about the regulation of DeFi. And I think it's going to be very complicated and it's going to depend on, you know, the specific function of a given DeFi project. And that may mean that commodities regulators are involved. It may mean that securities regulators are involved. It may mean that banking regulators are involved. But what we hope the vision is, you know, very close to what um, former controller Brooks outlined in his op-ed is that we are regulating to the risks because DeFi changes that risk profile compared to the traditional world. And you can actually take out a lot of risks that we have within our current system by putting it into a protocol where anyone can go in and, and look at the source code and see how it's built. But it also creates new risks, and that may require a different type of regulation. So I think this is where the most innovative thinking needs to happen. We spend a lot of time at the Blockchain Association thinking about these issues. We have a fantastic uh, DeFi working group led by uh, Jake Shervinsky with Compound and Jason Salmonzato with Zero X and Brian Novello with Maker. And we have a lot of dialogue and discussion thinking about this, but, but I would say beyond, you know, the OCC and the SEC. Congress isn't really thinking about this yet. There's, you know, a few members have thought about it, but they—I don't think they've fully grasped it yet. I'm not sure that Treasury and FinCEN are too far along in their thinking, though they're starting to ask questions. So I definitely think it's something that's coming up on the radar. I think it's going to be incumbent upon the industry to figure out the best way to talk about it. But more importantly, the faster that these tools like become actually useful, I think the better chance we are to have good policies because when there are a lot of consumers that are getting, uh, or, or businesses that are getting benefit from you know, a new system, I think that's gonna make it easier for policymakers to get, wanna get engaged in a favorable way. So I definitely think it's gonna be a challenge we have to navigate. And as Amy pointed out on the list of issues before, it's, it's definitely one that is emerging and that we're gonna be looking at in 2021.
1: You know, I think when we're looking at these New technologies, I mean, these DeFi is emerging. It, it, we haven't seen its full capability yet. And, you know, what I think might be a, a strong message for the incoming Biden administration is really to take a lesson from the internet and the growth of the internet and how that happened. And in this case, you know, it was a Clinton Gore policy back in nineteen ninety-nine, two thousand. That hands-off approach, there were a lot of concerns around the internet and being used for bad actors and things like that. And if we had just reacted to that use. The internet might not have flourished at all, but instead, you, know, you recognize what the risks are, but you also have to embrace the potential. And that's what they did. And they issued a document that had a lot of principles and then a lot of recitation of laws and things that we should be thinking about, but take this hands-off approach, let industry lead and let it grow a little bit before we think about just how to regulate it right away. And that might be something that we think about here. You know, first, the transition issues that we've been talking about from the beginning, And then, you know, the broader issues about new and innovative concepts like DeFi and self-managed wallets and things that people haven't really seen before and allow those to grow. And so we might take some lessons from the past and bring them to the present, what we're dealing with today.
4: I think, Amy, you make such a good point. Really, when I think about how the coordination happens among federal agencies and with state agencies, you know, there is this. Some players get along better than others. Some of that is personality driven. Some of that is driven by history, if they've collaborated before. It's very idiosyncratic, you know, and so you might think that two agencies would be deeply aligned on certain topics. And in fact, that turns out to not be the case because the people put in charge of those agencies just have different views or just don't see eye to eye or whatever it might be. And it remains to be seen what's going to happen here. What I think we saw under the Trump administration was, as you noted, this opportunity for the states to really take an active role and for unlikely players like Wyoming to come in and turn out to be major players on the scene. And I'm curious if there are any other players that we aren't necessarily thinking of that might emerge similarly, either a hands-off approach that might be taken. Either other geographies, I mean, thinking even outside the United States, are there places that are poised to have tremendous impact on this industry in a way that might require a federal government response, as opposed to the federal government being very proactive, which we've kind of been assuming throughout this conversation?
1: I agree with you. You know, the way other governments are looking at this technology has been strategic. We're the country to beat, right? You know, we've got this dominant position with the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency and that makes us the, the the country to beat, right? And you know, you look at China with respect to its digital currency, and you know that was years and years in in the in the making. And they've run a, a number of pilots uh, with respect to that technology. Singapore is angling. The EU is looking at both the the central bank and and the EU, the EC Commission, um, both looking at um, studying this and rolling out some pilots and and sorting that out this year. You know, so we're expecting to see some um, progress there. So there's a lot going on around the world. And of course, we're taking a measured approach as we should. I don't know that we have to be the first out of the gate on all of these things, but we can't be last. <laughs> and we're we're certainly maybe taking a, a slow stroll through these issues. <laughs> and I, I think we're not understanding the urgency that is that is building. And it's building with each passing day really is because everybody else is is moving ahead.
3: Yeah, I mean, that international theme is, is a really important one. I mean, we are not an island, and this technology just doesn't respect borders. That's really the uh, defining feature of, of it, the decentralized communities that run around it. So I think it's very important that whatever policies are implemented are done within that international context. And this administration, I think, you know, it's fair to say, is going to be inherently more international in its outlook on so many other aspects of its policymaking. I imagine that bodes better for what I just described or not, because clearly in some respects, what's at stake here is literally US leadership of the global financial system and CBDCs and a whole host of other ideas, stable coins themselves, as well as Bitcoin, of course, challenge that hegemony in, in interesting ways. And some would argue, myself included, in fact, that eventually the US has to figure out how to get off that drug. I don't think this administration certainly not the previous one. I just don't know that anybody's ready for that because the disruption is so huge. But thinking about that big question, the dollar's place in the world, I think has to be part of this process. Do we have enough visionaries, either in this administration or in Washington generally, who are thinking about really how big this is on an international level and therefore trying to calibrate policy around that?
0: I'm not sure we have quite the number of people in government thinking about this as we want. I mean, we certainly obviously do. But you know, when I think about, you know, the dollar's future in terms of the scope of the membership of the Blockchain Association, you know, CBDCs are sort of outside of what we work on. However, I do see a lot of the work that our members are doing around, you know, dollar backed stable coins as actually being playing an incredibly important role in keeping the dollar relevant. Because If you build payment systems using dollar-backed stablecoins and we're able to move money around just as fast as as a a nation that has a CBDC, you're able to have all the programmability features. It's actually sort of private sector innovation and entrepreneurship that I think could actually keep the U.S. competitive. Um, And so I think that's um, maybe not... The most common perspective, but sort of the perspective that a lot of our members take within the blockchain association, and and as we sort of look at it, is our role is that there's a lot that we can do to make the dollar easier to use and easier to move around, and hopefully that will help in a small way to keep the dollar important. Because I know when you talk to any policymaker, they certainly want to, uh, they don't want to lose that power because it it is so important to the United States, but. There's certainly those at the Fed and others that are thinking about this, but I think it's a long way off before we get to some sort of a CBDC in the US. I mean, I know there's trials, but just takes a while to move, make changes that are that big. But in the meantime, I think we've got some pretty good side plans.
1: And and Michael, I mean, to your point too, I I mean, it's crucial that the the United States maintains the dollar as the reserve currency, and we, we use the dollar- to enforce our trade policy globally. You know, it, you know, the ability to use the U.S. financial markets hinges on that and economic sanctions, for example. You know, we've used the ability of foreign companies and foreign governments to access our financial services system or not based on economic sanctions policy. And if people no longer need to use the U.S. dollar to settle trade finance transactions, for example, we've lost that, that power, that effectiveness. And if uh, trade finance contracts are priced in digital one, for example. They can be entirely offshore, and people don't need to to route those um, payments through the U.S. financial system. So I think it's a it's an extraordinary issue, and I'm not sure. I, I think there are people that understand that, but I think people need to understand that more.
3: It's certainly an extraordinary issue. We've had a lot of discussions on this program about like whether or not there was actually way too much power in the hands of the United States, and that, that these unintended consequences of excessive surveillance and management actually result in fallout in negative terms and things like financial inclusion so so i'm not not convinced that we would should see it collectively as humanity has a, a broad interest in in the u.s maintaining this yeah. power but certainly you can understand from the perspective of u.s power that it is an extremely sensitive and difficult issue what i think is an interesting way because we have to wind this up now but i think it's probably an interesting note to for me to close off on here is to pick up a little bit what Kristen said in that context and, th- and i think both of you have talked about like you know the, the past moments in history where the United States took the view that its interests lay in open international systems. If you look back in the nineties, when you know the internet policy was being formed, the U S was really taking the view that U S wins when the world opens up, when there is open innovation, when there is free trade, that was the era of GATT and WTO and the telecom act and breaking up monopolies. And it was all about openness. And the U S was advancing because of the idea that open protocols whether it's trade policies or you know literally you know I- internet protocols were for the benefit of all so i'd love to see that we get through this moment now and some of that mindset p- persists in that american power has always been and it should have always been thought of at least as the extension of soft power that the more that there is an open system for everybody the more that we win and you don't necessarily want to be the biggest most powerful country in the world but you win by the advance of opportunity and growth and inclusion so there's a lot at stake here it's exciting to see that we have a different administration which i think looks outward to the world rather than inward as a starting point but the challenges are huge you know these are really thorny questions with an enormous amount of vested interest at stake so you guys have got a lot on your shoulders <laughs> we should let you go and get on with the job uh, because you're going to be very busy over the next uh, few months and over the next uh, four years so i just want to thank you both for some excellent insights uh, for being yes. here with us today and for exploring this there's a lot to talk about going forward so thanks very
2: much You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, Amy Kim, and Kristen Smith. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited by Michelle Musso, produced and announced by Adam B. Levine. Do you have any questions or comments, send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave a review on your favorite podcast player. And stay tuned for our next exploration of this critical topic, coming to a podcast player near you on January 29th, 2021. From all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.